And Elizabeth's going to bring us our reading for this evening. Thanks, Elizabeth. The reading tonight is in two parts, and they're both from John chapter 9, which in your church Bibles can be found on page 1075. So that's John chapter 9. And the first reading is verses 1 to 12. Jesus heals a man born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. Then I could see. Where is this man? they asked him. I don't know, he said. And then verses 35 to 41. Spiritual blindness. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one you're speaking with, who is speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thanks, Elizabeth. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we meet this evening as those who were once blind, but who now see. And we thank you that we only see because of your Spirit who's opened our eyes. And we do pray this evening that he would continue to enable us to see Jesus more clearly and help us to be able to follow him 
more closely. Help us to learn from his example as he showed mercy to the man in this story and as he brought him to to faith. Lord, we want to be your instruments in this world, in this needy world. So may all that we do and say this evening help us in that aim, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be a little bit interactive this evening, you'll be pleased to know, so hopefully you're not going to be nodding off. Um, now, you know those little interviews that um, uh, you'll be familiar with, where somebody gives you two options and you have to choose which one you prefer? Um, say, for example, coffee or tea. Um, you love them, don't you? Well, we're going to do a little, little bit of one of those, but you're all going to take part in it. Um, and when I say the first one, uh, if you prefer that one, stick your hand up. If you prefer the second one, um, keep your hand down. So, for example, if I say coffee or tea, if you prefer coffee, put your hand up. If you prefer tea, keep your hand down. Right, um, let's give it a go, shall we? Let's, uh, history or geography? Okay. Um, sport or craft? Yes, interesting uh, gender difference there on that one. Um, Thatcher or Blair? Oh, getting political now. <laughs> uh, village or town? Yeah, I suppose not surprising, really. But, uh, youth or elderly? Controversial. Genesis or Revelation? Social action or gospel proclamation? <laughs> you can see where it's going, can you? As you know, with all those things, it's not really a valid choice, is it? I mean, how can you choose between youth or elderly or Genesis or Revelation, social action or gospel proclamation? Does it have to be one or the other? And from our series so far, hopefully you will know that it's not one or the other. We've looked so far the reasons why um, we should engage with the world through social action. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the need to display the, the character of God, his mercy to the world, um, to follow the example of Christ incarnate, Christ coming into this world, and to demonstrate our understanding of his grace. And last week we looked at the question, what are the needs of those around us that we should be meeting? And we had that little uh, diagram, I think, which should be coming up from uh, Tim Keller, the concentric circles. Um, right in the middle, our deepest need, uh, our spiritual need, the fact that we've been separated from God because of sin. Uh, moving outwards, alienation from ourselves, our psychological needs. From others, our social needs. And at the outside, from nature, our physical needs, which are usually the most visible needs that we can see around us. We also saw how Christ came to deal with alienation by establishing his kingdom and how this life is about bringing every aspect of our lives under the reign of Jesus Christ. And so Christians are called to proclaim the kingdom and to meet people's needs. But it still left open the question, probably hanging a little bit last week, of how do those two fit together? How does gospel proclamation and social action fit together? Does one take priority over the other? Um, if so, what does it mean to take priority? Can you actually separate them? 
Well, those are the questions we're going to be looking at this evening. But I, th- I think it would be helpful um, for those who put their hands up for history, and maybe for those who didn't, just to give you a little bit of background to um, what has happened in Christian circles over the last couple of hundred years. Because historically, social action and gospel proclamation um, have been quite intimately related to one another. And Christians have just got on with both without actually really feeling they needed to define what they were doing and why. So if we go back, for example, to the beginning of the 18th century, the UK was in a bit of a mess, morally speaking. Um, Thomas Carlyle, the philosopher, said, described the country in this way. He said, stomach well alive, soul extinct. Just to give you an idea of what the country was like in those days, there was widespread drunkenness and gambling. Um, Slave trade was was active, it was lucrative business. Uh, Life in the workhouses for for children led uh, almost uh, inevitably to to their death. There was uh, bear baiting, cockfighting, there were public executions and tickets being sold to them. But as Whitfield, wasn't just and Wesley and others began to preach the gospel throughout the country, things changed. And it wasn't just that people were converted, but the result of those conversions was um, a transformation of society. So we had um, in the 19th century slavery and the slave trade being abolished, uh, the prison system being humanized, conditions in factories and mines improved, hospitals multiplied, and education was made available to to the poor. There was an expansion in overseas mission. And again, it wasn't just about missionaries going out and preaching the gospel. It was about people going out and taking medicines for the sick, uh, taking seeds um, uh, to plant to help the local economies. So if the gospel was producing great social reform, what happened to change all that? If the Christians were active in society, what, uh, what went wrong, if you like? Well, at some point during the first 30 years of the 20th century, and especially the decade after the First World War, there was a major shift which has been called the the Great Reversal. It was when evangelicals basically neglected that sense of social responsibility. There are a number of reasons that people put forward for that. I don't know if anybody knows any of those. Anybody want to shout any reasons why you might think that um, evangelicals pulled back from their involvement in uh, in society and helping. Anybody want to shout out any suggestions why that might have uh, happened? Any historians amongst us? We need a Debbie here, didn't we, really? To ask to... <laughs> okay. There was some of that, certainly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think there was any reason. I don't think it was just that the state sort of stepped in. I think there are other reasons. Anybody want to suggest other reasons? More socially acceptable. More socially acceptable to... Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, socially acceptable to tell them about their physical needs rather than the, the, the spiritual. Um, but a lot of it's to do with, to do with um, the emergence of liberal theology. Um, at that time, there was a belief that... Um, uh, or a lack of belief in the authority, the sufficiency um, of Scripture. Uh, there was um, a lack of belief in the, the death of Christ as substitutionary atonement for sin. 
the miracles of Christ as actual events. There was an undermining of some of those key things which were always accepted. And so evangelicals, in many ways, actually spend their time defending biblical Christianity. There was also the emergence of the, the social gospel, which was the belief that it's the responsibility of Christians to effectively reconstruct the kingdom of God on earth rather than living out the gospel and inviting people to submit their lives to the reign of Christ. There was obviously the First World War and disillusionment with, um, with humanity and a belief that actually you're wasting your tri- time trying to change society. Um, there was also the spread of... Um, an idea called premillennialism, which I won't go into now, but it's quite rife today in, in the US still, which in very simple terms is the view that actually the world will only get worse and worse before Christ comes, and therefore actually there's not much point trying to be involved in social reform. You might as well just wait for Jesus and focus on the spiritual. Well, it wasn't really until the 1960s that evangelical leaders began to grapple again with the, um, the social application of the gospel, and um, there was a, a congress on world evangelization in Lausanne in 1974 in Switzerland, which started a serious debate going again about um, social responsibility and evangelism. And there were really two sort of sides in the debate at that time, two of the key players being John Stott on one hand and a guy called Arthur Johnston, who was the uh, professor of mission at um, Trinity Evangelical School in the US. Um, he saw mission as evangelism and evangelism alone. Whereas Stott said, actually, the, the words and deeds of Jesus were inseparable. Uh, and rather than social action undermining evangelism, um, actually love is the historical or the essential motivation for mission. So they had a conference and um, came, actually, the two sides came very much together as they understood this, what they were understanding, what they were talking about, and came to pretty much a consensus. And since then, um, there has been much more sense of actually evangelicals need to get involved again. There are obviously differences of opinion still and risks involved in that, but um, let's just look now then at some of the conclusions they reached as we look to John 9 as well to learn something from that. And the first point I want to make this evening is that social action and proclamation are distinct, but they are inseparable activities. They're distinct in the sense that they address very different needs. You know, humankind's fundamental need, as we looked at last, last week, is to be made right with God. The broken relationship between man and God needs to be restored. And it's the gospel that makes that possible. Our other needs that we looked at in, that cir- in those circles, our psychological, our social, our, our physical needs, are all needs that can be addressed through social action of one form or another. Another reason why they are distinct is that the results of social action are limited in time, whereas the results of evangelism are eternal. In the story of Jesus healing the blind man in John 9, if you want to keep that open there, Jesus um, sought out the blind man later on. Had he not done that, um, you know, he would have enjoyed good eyesight for the, the rest of his life, which wouldn't have been a bad thing. No need for glasses or go to spec savers. But actually wouldn't have helped him when he died, would it? There's a temporal effect and there's an eternal effect. And linked to that, the fruit of social action, therefore, can be overturned very quickly. 
They can spend a long time helping someone, maybe try and break a destructive habit, only for them to then go back to it. Whereas the fruit of proclamation can't be undone because once someone belongs to Jesus Christ, he won't let them go. So they're distinct activities, but they're also inseparable. Let's go back to verse 1 of John 9. This is how it opens. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus saw someone in need. So we're talking with Amy earlier on. Do we see people in need? Jesus saw people around him. He saw their needs. And what did he do? He, he healed him. The blind man didn't even actually ask to be healed. Uh, normally in his ministry, Jesus would heal often as a result of the faith of the sick person. But here there's no conversation. Jesus just, just did it. He didn't say, look, actually, I've got an important evangelistic event to get to. You know, when I've done that, I'll come back, and if I've still got a bit of time, I'll, I'll help you with your, your blindness. No, he, he healed him. And later, after the blind man gets into a bit of a dispute with the, uh, the Pharisees, we're told that, in verse 35, Jesus seeks him out. And then he asks him the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man replies, who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Probably would have been a longer conversation, but this is what we have recorded. But basically, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. And the man responds. First, he had his physical needs met, and later he had his deeper spiritual need met. Now, sometimes Jesus does these things simultaneously. We saw that this morning, didn't we, in the uh, uh, healing of the paralytic man. When Jesus said, he said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So although social action and proclamation are distinct activities, they are inseparable in the sense that you can't choose as a Christian to do one or the other. That would be like drawing up a list of priorities. You start at the top and uh, you work your way down. The only thing is uh, you don't get down to the things at the bottom because when you've knocked off the things at the top, they're replaced by other important things that come in, if it's anything like my uh, to-do list. And uh, so if you're still waiting for me to do something, I'm sorry, but it's still... Um, waiting to get to the top of the list. If you took that approach to social action, then you'd never actually help anybody, would you? Jesus would never have healed anybody. So social action and gospel proclamation are inseparable in the sense that the gospel is also not just something that is spoken. It's something that is lived out. You know, It affects all of our lives. To do proclamation without social action would be be like teaching someone to drive without ever having passed a test yourself. You're just giving them knowledge without showing that you know how to do it yourself. There is a challenge here, though, because as individual Christians, we will come into contact with those in need, different situations, and we should feel moved to help them. If we don't, then let's pray that God would move us to, to help them. As a church, in addition to 
and equipping each other to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel to help people uh, in their different situations. We, we also organize events and ministries. And it would be possible just to organize evangelistic events, to not organize any as we social action. And you can understand why, why, why churches do that. As we said earlier, the impact of the gospel can't be undone. Surely that must take priority. It's an eternal result that we're looking at. The trouble is the only people who hear the gospel in that case are the, only one, are the ones who come to the events. And, and some may come to the events with immediate needs and not actually connect with the gospel message. That's the first time they hear it. And just leave without having their particular needs met, without actually thinking that anybody really cares about what is going on in their lives. Others may never even come to the events because uh, actually they don't even know anybody who goes to church. So if social action and gospel proclamation are inseparable for us as individuals, then surely they should be inseparable for us as a church. Because as a church we do have choices. And it's up to us to give the, the members of the church the opportunity to do both evangelism and social action, to live out your Christian lives as though both are distinct and yet inseparable. But the next point is that um, social action is not a means to an end, but it can often be a bridge to the gospel. Some Christians would say that actually the whole purpose of social action is to bring people to Christ. And so you would you know, maybe run a soup kitchen um, with the sole purpose of speaking to the homeless about Jesus Christ. And if you don't get an opportunity to do that, then actually you think you failed. And it was a whole waste of time. But that forgets that deeds are just as much grace as words are. You know, we, we know the gospel is all about grace. It's about Christ's undeserved love towards us sinners. And he saved us while we were still sinners. We did nothing to earn that salvation. But we have to be careful that we somehow think the gospel is about grace, but our acts of kindness are, are conditional. If we see a need, we, we meet it whether the person deserves it or not. Otherwise, we run into problems with uh, Jesus' teaching in Luke. Let's have a look at Luke chapter 6. If you turn back um, a few pages with me. Luke six thirty-two. It says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love for your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. When Jesus healed the blind man, he expected nothing in return. It was an undeserved act of kindness. 
when he heard he'd got into trouble with the authorities, he, he then went and uh, sought him out. Uh, and he did another undeserved act of kindness. He told him about the gospel. And our motivation to help others through word or deed should be the same. Amy mentioned earlier on, if, uh, if you're helping somebody with uh, something and they ask you, why, why, why are you doing that? How would you respond in that situation? If somebody said to you, why are you so kind? Why you, what has prompted you to help me? There's different ways you could respond to that, aren't there? Now, there's, different, there's wrong ways I think you could respond to it. Um, you could respond to it uh, because I want to tell you the gospel. Um, that would just be treating somebody as an object, wouldn't it? Um, you could respond to it saying, well, I like being kind which may be true, but actually all that is doing is making them think you are a lovely person. Um, now we can respond to that by actually pointing them to Jesus, can't we? Say, well, actually, I'm a Christian and I want to serve and love my community. I want to serve the people around me. It's loving, but connecting that love to Jesus. So social action is not a means to an end, but it can often be a bridge to the gospel. We were talking about this last week. If you help someone with... Um, their immediate physical needs, then they will be more open to, um, to telling you about their deeper needs because they see that you care. You've built up a sense of trust. And so the opportunities to share the gospel may come up quite naturally. You've broken down the barriers. Some people may have all sorts of prejudices against Christians. They may have picked them up from the media or just from uh, people they've talked to. And so to see Christian love in action can have a really profound impact. People may not always accept our beliefs, but if they see our actions, they will find it hard to deny the power. Many people coming to faith will point to the actions of one or more Christians who showed them love before they even understood the gospel. Well, finally, social action often follows gospel proclamation. We've said that social action can be a bridge that leads to a, an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and lead to salvation. But it also works the other way around, that the aim of gospel proclamation can be good works. What it says in Ephesians 2 is that we've been saved by grace through faith to do the good works that Christ has prepared for us to do. And also people who come to repentance, um, they want to show their faith in the way they help others. You know, one of the, the motivations for social action is to demonstrate that we've grasped the grace, that we've understood that Christ died for us even though we didn't deserve it. And so we want to live that out. We want to help others and show that same love. And the difficulty is that sometimes individuals come to faith they want to express their appreciation to God by, by way of, of acts of kindness. And yet the church doesn't provide them with the opportunity to do so. And there are things the church can do that individuals can't. And so if we're not careful that we can hamper the growth of young Christians. The other thing about uh, I think people being saved and coming into God's kingdom is that there are some issues they have to bring with them. You know, they may be able to turn their backs on their own personal sin. But what if they're living in a situation of social injustice? You know, if you're materially 
poor when you become a Christian. You become spiritually rich, don't you? But you don't suddenly become materially rich. And so as Christians plant new churches, as they bring the gospel to those in poverty, you can't just then walk away. You know, we have to help those new Christians with all of their needs, spiritual and material. And I think that's where we need to be careful. We don't draw too much of a line between the spiritual and material because God is interested in every area of our lives. He's put us in a material world. He doesn't expect us to ignore that side of life. Well, as we come um, to, to the end, we're going to have some time for prayer in a minute. We've said that we cannot separate social action from gospel proclamation. The two are distinct, and yet they're inseparable. Social action is not a means to an end, but it can be a bridge to the gospel. And it often follows gospel proclamation. So it can proceed, it can accompany, it can follow the proclamation of the gospel. But I think the key thing is the more we engage with people, the more we get involved in their lives, the more opportunities there will be for both social action and gospel proclamation. That goes for us as individuals, and that goes for us as a church. What I'd, what I'd like to do now, if we could just um, spend some time just in small groups around where you are, uh, just praying about what we've talked about, um, maybe sharing with one another what um, has struck you, if there's something particular that um, you feel um, you've uh, really taken on board tonight that God has been saying to you. Just share that with one another. And then just pray in small groups about some of those issues um, or any other issues that's on your heart. If there's a particular issue on your heart at the moment, you want to share with those around you. And we just are just like prayer for this week, something you're going into the week ahead where you're really quite anxious and you could really do with prayer for. Let's spend some time now just doing that and sharing together. Let's pray. Lord God, as we go out into the world this week, into the different uh, situations in which you have placed us, we do pray that all the people we meet this week, as we see them, that we would see them in the way you see them. We would see their needs. We would uh, show them the love and compassion that you would have towards them. And we would respond to them in the way you would respond to them. Lord, help us to be open to the, the leading of your spirit as we seek to, to share our faith in different ways. Help us to love with our deeds as well as our words. And so as we do so, Lord, and as we think uh, further ahead about how as a church together we can uh, serve the community in which you've placed us, we do pray for, again for your guidance and for the wisdom of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.